We are making our way through a series of messages entitled, The Cross from Christ's Perspective. The purpose of this series is to examine uh, as much as we can in the time that's allotted to us, the details of the cross from Christ's perspective in such a way that we will be hopefully overcome with joy uh, at the level of love with which He loves us. Most people, particularly those who are Christians, they understand or they've heard language their entire life that Jesus died on the cross for me. He was my theological word, substitutionary atonement. But that's oftentimes about the extent. They've read the gospel, the, the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Christ, but they haven't done an in-depth study perhaps between book to book and tying in other passages that weigh in as well. And so we are taking a look at the crucifixion of Christ. And in particular, I've arranged this particular study to look at it through the lens of Christ instead of the lens of maybe the people at the cross looking up or whatnot there. The world in which we live is, a, is both a physical world and it is a spiritual world. The Bible affirms the realities of both. Though the physical world understands that there is a spiritual world that's going on, the, the physical realm knows that there's a spiritual realm, if you will, of what's going on. We are not privy to the details of what's taking place within the spiritual realm unless God chooses to... Reveal it. We saw this in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 16 where Peter makes the, the date, the great declaration when he says to, when Jesus says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Simon Peter answered, You are literally the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. The, 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 the. That is Peter speaking in the physical realm. Peter's physical. He's standing there. He's answering a question. And yet we have a glimpse of what's taking place in the spiritual realm of what guided that and what led to him coming to that conclusion because Jesus revealed the spiritual realities behind the declaration that Peter made. In other words, Jesus said this, he said this, he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, there's Peter there standing among the other disciples. Jesus asks a question and Peter answers it. And Jesus says, yes, in the physical realities, what you said, Peter, you said it. But the truth is, is you did not come up with that on your own. You didn't survey the crowd to find what your opinion is. The reason you can make that declaration is because of the spiritual truth, the spiritual reality that God the Father gave that to you and was speaking through you. All of us would like to hope that as we speak the truth, that it is God speaking through us. That's certainly what happened with the Old Testament prophets. 
When Peter heard that, God speaking through you, you think it maybe made him, ha, yeah, that's right, that's God speaking through me. You know, I mean, knowing Peter and his, his personality, you don't think he smiled at the other disciples, do you? And yet in the same chapter of the Bible, in Matthew chapter 16, the Bible says this, he says in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, we don't know how much time. Was it a day? Was it a few hours? Did one conversation flow into the next? There are no time indicators between the two. But what we do know is, is when Peter opened his mouth and declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus affirms the spiritual reality that that, that was God speaking through you. And now, in this case, when, when Peter pulls Christ aside and begins to rebuke him and says, This shall not happen to you. Again, that happened in the physical realm, the physical reality. Peter opened his mouth and declared, but this time, God reveals a different spiritual realm working around him. And again, if Jesus had not revealed this truth, we would not have Known it. Jesus, the Bible says in this account and one other account, turned to him. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Here, Jesus is rebuking both Peter and the one who influenced Peter to make this declaration. Now, now, before we get to become too hard on Peter, um, all of us have a tendency to struggle with our tongue. James warns that the tongue, right... You know, it ought not to be that out of the same mouth, through the same tongue, both blessing and cursings happened. But is there one among us who would say, mm, yeah, but that's not true of me because both blessings and cursings come. You can read your Bible and be filled with joy and in the Spirit and in a moment of an incident on the highway or the hammer drops on your thumb or something happens within your family and all of a sudden, venom comes. I'm not saying that God did this and Satan did that. I'm just showing you that behind the physical realities, what happened in this case, here's Satan at work trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. As we look at this particular study, I think it's important for us to... Um, to have a framework upon which to look at it. The framework that I've chosen for our study is through Jesus' imagery 
of the cup. You remember from our study of last week that on two occasions James and John come, and on uh, one occasion James and John come to Jesus. On another occasion, the mother of James and John come. And you can see this in Matthew chapter 21. You can see this in Mark 10. Uh, we said this before. And, and what happens is, is they want to sit on your left and on your right. And Jesus says this, Are you able, in one case, to drink the cup that I drink, present tense, the ongoing normal cup? There is an aspect of which there is this cup we would call it the cup of discipleship that we were willing to drink. We kind of spoke a little bit about that on, on Wednesday as well. But Jesus also said, are you able to drink the cup that I am uh, about to drink? Future. In other words, there are aspects to the cup that Jesus is about to drink that's yet future. And this cup that he drinks... Only Jesus has the capacity and the ability to drink it. Because when we got to John chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man is about to be glorified. And He says, glory, 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 glory. John chapter 13, verse 31, five times. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. He will glorify Him immediately. Peter, James, and John, who experienced the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, but then had to keep their lips zipped about it, were probably thinking, now everybody's going to see and experience what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration a year before. And But Jesus says this to them. He says in verse 33, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the enemy unbelieving Jews, if you will, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I want to be clear here. This was not a lack of permission. This wasn't Jesus withholding permission from them to go. He uses the word dunamis, which means the ability, the power, the possibility. It was impossible for them to go where Jesus was going. They did not have the capacity to do so. So in our study of this, I want you to know that we are looking at something unique. We are looking at a cup, and yes, all of us have a cup to drink, but we are looking at the unique cup upon which Christ drunk that involved everything that relates to satisfying the wrath of God, forgiving us of our sins, making it possible for us to be brought into the family of God. And there is a cup that Jesus drank that no one else could because there's not a person who has ever lived who has, the Greek word is dunamai, dynamite. We get our word dynamite. I thought it was funny, Clarence, you mentioned dynamite this morning. When you think about dynamite, dynamite has the capacity, right, to move things and to accomplish and to, to do all those things. Clarence says he knows where we get some dynamite on those walls in there. This word dunamis means ability, capability, possibility. And what Jesus is saying in John chapter 13 verse 31 is you, not, it's not lack of permission, 
It's you don't have the ability to go where I am going. As much as it is impossible for a one-day-old baby to drive a car, they can't do it. Even if you say, sure, go right ahead and drive the car, they don't have the ability or the capacity to do it. In the same way, they don't have the ability or the capacity to go with Jesus and to drink the cup which He is about to drink. Three aspects to this cup really encompass the study that, that we're on. There, there are three, three aspects, and through this series, we're going to discover what all three of them are today. Hopefully, I'll get to the first one today. That's my goal. At least introduce it. But I want you to see this, that there are three aspects that made the cup of Christ different and unique from any cup that anyone has ever drunk. And it all involves what happens to Christ and with Christ on the cross. Now, just to put it in context to kind of see what we're talking about, if you go back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 52, we like to run to Isaiah 53 as the uh, passage of Scripture about the great Messiah and, and, and the things that He will endure. And yes, it is a wonderful passage and we need to turn there. But that passage of Scripture does not start in Isaiah 53 verse 1. It actually starts before that. These are in a set of songs that Isaiah is writing. And Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 is where the passage begins. And so if you just pick up in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1, you'll miss this particular aspect of Christ. So, so here's Jesus. He is drinking from the cup. Remember, he, he told the disciples, Peter cuts off the ear. And when he cuts off the ear, Jesus puts the ear back on. And he said, shall I not drink the cup that my pater father has given me to drink? Jesus, it is settled. It is done. Jesus is resolved to drink every drop of the cup by that particular point in time of his arrest. And in doing so, when He goes to the cross, His crucifixion is unlike the thousands, perhaps millions of others who have been crucified. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Verse 14, Just as many were astonished at you, my people. Notice verse 14. So His appearance was marred more than any man, and His form more than the Son of Man. Now you could go on to, to chapter 53. It talks about Christ. He grew up before Him like a tender shoot. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him. He wasn't extremely attractive. He didn't stand out above the crowd. I know every time you watch a Jesus movie on TV, you can just look at all the people, and before he even speaks, you can pick out who Jesus is, maybe because of the blue eyes, I don't know, or because of whatever. But, but somehow he always stands out, right? But not true in the Bible. There was nothing about him that would stand out and be unique and, and different. 
He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging... We are healed. Though there were thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people who died on the cross, only one at the end of the crucifixion, only one, verse 14 of 52 says that his appearance was marred more than any other man. His actual appearance changed. Now I've seen some horrific wrecks. I've seen some surgeries and some things that have happened. I've seen the swelling and the bloating. I've seen all the things. But at the end of the day, no matter how bad that person looked, they still looked like a person. Not so with Jesus on the cross. He was marred more than another in His form more than the sons of men. If I could, if I could say it this way, to take Jesus and to look at Him after the cross, you would not even be able to recognize a human form. That's what this language is saying in the Old Testament. What caused that? That's what we're studying. You see, you and I can't go there because we don't have the ability, the capacity to go there. If you're taking notes, just write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, as it relates to His ability. The Bible says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted. Look at this. Beyond what you are dynamite. Beyond what you are able. In other words, every temptation that we face, every weight of burden that we carry, God, listen, He will He give you more than you can handle? Yes, but He won't give you more than you and He together can handle. And you can't say, the devil made me do it, because God's given you the ability. He gives you a way of escape. No temptation is going to come upon you, except such as is common to man. God is faithful. Now look at this. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. He will not. If you sin, and let me say it this way, when you sin, it is clear on the authority of God's Word that God did not put more on you to cause you to sin. God is not the author of sin. He will not put more on you, temptation-wise, than you can handle, and He makes a way of escape. The key is beyond what you are able to endure. How much more was Christ able to endure than what you and I are able to endure? On a scale of one to a thousand, if He could endure a thousand, 
however rating scale you want to do it, on a scale of one to a thousand, you and I, all of us, would be somewhere in terms of what we can handle in comparison to what he can handle, somewhere on the scale uh, point zero 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 one. We don't have the ability and the capacity to go where he goes, to drink the cup that he drank. We were disqualified the moment that we've sinned. We were disqualified. Three aspects of the cup is what we're going to look at in, in our particular study. And let's 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 look. Let's go a little bit. Let's look a little further. Look in Matthew chapter sixteen again, and and let's let's just kind of begin to introduce the the first one. Matthew chapter sixteen. We've already looked at it. In Matthew chapter sixteen, Jesus turns and looks at Peter after Peter rebukes him, and we see in Matthew chapter sixteen. Verse 23, that Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus has just announced that He's going to the cross. He just announced, verse 21, From that time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And now here's Satan, Satan working through Peter. And what's he trying to do? What's Satan doing in this, in this passage of Scripture? His desire is to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Peter's trying to stand in the way of Jesus going to the cross. And yet it's not Peter working in his own strength behind him. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why do you think Satan would want to keep Jesus from going to the cross? He would want to keep Jesus from going to the cross because he knows the Bible more than most Christians know the Bible. And he knows Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says that through the seed of a woman is going to come one who will ultimately crush the serpent's head. From that day on, there would be a limitless possibility of seeds born through the seed of woman and any one of the millions and millions and millions of people, billions of, if you will, who have lived through history, from Satan's perspective, any one of them could have been the seed through, born of the woman who would crush his head. And yet at the moment that they sinned, at the moment that they caved into temptation, at the moment they didn't complete all of the law, they would be disqualified and he could leave them alone because no matter how good they were, no matter how much they did, no matter what they accomplished, no matter how much influence they had, they would not be the head crusher because they themselves need to be redeemed and therefore can't be the redeemer. So Satan is looking through every person who is born and finally there's one born who was declared in the Old Testament and the New Testament that this is... My beloved Son, God said, in whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Christ pulls back the veil of his flesh and his glory goes through. And the second time, in case Satan missed it the first time, which he didn't, God again says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Satan knew that for Christ to go to the cross would be the ultimate head crushing for him, removing the curse of sin upon the earth and setting the captives free. Makes sense why he would work to try to keep Jesus from going to the cross, does it not? But then we come to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Verse 1. The Bible says, Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priest, verse 2 says, The chief priest and scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. So, so they were seeking... Uh, that that word there, uh, the language of seeking, is they were seeking over and over and over again. They didn't have one meeting to try to figure it out. It's it's right. It's imperfect tense. They were continuously seeking how they might put him to death. His human enemies had already decided that this one must die. But now, look in verse three. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. Now, look in verse 4. Let's just read it before the name and come back. Verse 4. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm reading this right... And I am, because I know where I'm going. I've done this study. In Matthew 16, Satan is working to keep Jesus from coming to the cross. But in Luke 22, Satan is entered into Judas and is working to bring Jesus to the cross. Matthew 16, don't go to the cross. Luke 22, go to the cross. The chief priests and scribes are there. They're plotting and planning. And all of a sudden, Judas shows up. One of the twelve. And they don't know. In fact, you wouldn't know and I wouldn't know who was at play and who, what was going on here if God hadn't revealed it. Judas didn't walk up and say, Hey, y'all. I'm not demon-possessed. I'm Satan and dwelt. And I got a deal for you. They would not know that Satan was the one at work in Judas to bring this about and make this happen. They would not take this deal that Judas is bringing to them and agree to pay him to betray the Son of Man and leave that meeting and say, we just made a deal with the devil. They would be oblivious to the power that was behind it. But, but you and I are not because God revealed the spiritual realities behind the physical realities. Verse 5. 
All they would know, one of the twelve comes and wants to betray him, knows where he is. Great, let's go get him and get rid of this guy. What you and I know, because we have the Bible, is that Satan entered into Jesus. Could you imagine the darkness? I, could you imagine the evil look in his eye, the darkness that was there? This is, listen, and I don't mean to put degrees or things like that, but again, this is not a demon-possessed individual. This is a Satan indwelt. It's Satan that entered into him, not one of his demons. In fact, we see Satan at work a couple of times in this particular passage of Scripture. If you go a little bit further in verse 31, Satan's really at work. And again, we have an, an insight into the spiritual realities that take place. Not only is Satan at work indwelling Judas to bring Jesus to the cross, but Jesus enlightens Peter on some spiritual realities as well. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold... Simon would have no clue that this conversation happened. He would have no clue that this had even taken place at all. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. If you mark your Bibles, mark that word you because you there is in the plural. He didn't just seek, right? He didn't just seek to sift Peter, to sift you, plural, the disciples like wheat. He says, but I have prayed for you, Peter, singular, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter would have had no clue that permission was granted to Satan to sift him like wheat if God had not revealed it in the pages of Scripture. One that we miss sometimes, verse 47. By the way, Jesus prays in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. John eighteen eleven. he says, Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me to drink? So it is settled. He knows all that's there. He knows every drop that's in the cup, and he's willing to, to drink it. But look in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. And you can add in your Bible a note, Satan was there, because where was Satan? He had indwelt Judas. And when Judas kissed the kiss of betrayal on the cheek of Jesus. Satan was there. So, why Matthew 16? Would Satan be at work? That makes sense to us to keep Jesus from coming to the cross. But now in Luke 22... He is actively at work to bring Jesus to the cross. You could wrestle with it and wrestle with it. And you can think about it. Don't come to the cross. Okay, come to the cross. What changed? What what happened? Well, I think the text gives us the answer. I won't make you wrestle with that as long as others have wrestled with that question. 
But in Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus says, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But, now if you mark your Bible, you want to mark this verse. But this hour and the power of the darkness are yours. Literally in the Greek, it is this is the hour of you, plural, and the power, authority of the darkness. In other words, there is an hour. Now, let's be clear that there are times when an hour is 60 minutes long. Remember when Jesus was praying in the garden and he left the disciples and went a little bit further and he prayed and he came back and he said, What? Could you not pray with me for? One hour in that case, listen, in that case, clearly, clearly he meant 60 minutes. But there are other times and places in the Bible where one hour doesn't just mean one hour. It means a designated period of time. Uh, you, you can note Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. When Jesus offers the promise to uh, the, the believers that I will keep you from, right, the tribulation, from the hour of testing. Not 60 minutes of testing is going to come upon the whole earth. He's saying a season of time. So, so here, the reason Satan is coming to do this is because there is a designated hour of time, a start and a stop point that God has granted permission to unleash and unload everything that Satan could muster up to throw at Christ in the first aspect of the cup of Christ. Now, it's an hour, not 60 minutes, but a period of time, a definite start, and a definite finish. There are limitations, and yet there's freedom. In, in other words, we, we saw this in Job. Uh, for the sake of time, I won't have you turn there. Maybe you look at it on Wednesday. Job chapter 1 Satan comes to God, and God says, Have you considered my servant Job? He is what? He is, he is more righteous than all the ones of the earth. And Satan basically says, and I'm, I'm summarizing, he says this. He says, Yeah, but the reason why he worships you is because you bless him. Take your hand of protection off of him. And in Job chapter 1, God says, You can have him. Only you can't touch him. And Satan is given permission to sift Job, if he would, killed his sons and daughters, destroyed his businesses, and all of these things. And God is the one who said, you can have them, but it's limited. You can't touch Job, everything around him. It's in chapter 2 that Satan of Job, that, that Satan comes back again to God. Same type conversation. And this time God says, you can do whatever you want to do to him. You just can't kill him. So 
So, so God in His purposes... And by the way, Job never knew that conversation took place. There's no indication whatsoever that Job even knew that something greater than Job was taking place there. Job didn't know about this conversation. Job didn't understand what had happened and what was going on. Job just knew what he was experiencing. And yet, God unleashes Satan and God limits Satan. Make sense? So what limitation would there be upon Jesus? Well, clearly there would only be there would only be one. There would only be one. And that would be found in John chapter ten. John chapter ten verse seventeen. John chapter ten verse seventeen, Jesus says this for this reason. The Father loves me. Now I want you to notice this. He says, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down And I have authority to take it up again. Satan and the forces of hell can do everything that they want to do in this designated hour of the power of the darkness that is theirs. Unleash, unload everything that they have to muster on Him, on the cross. They cannot take His life. In other words, if they can get him to quit, if they can get him to come down, if they can get him, right, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but I mean, right, cry uncle, y'all know what I'm talking about? You know, you, you do something and then, okay, stop, 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 enough is enough. If they can get him to stop and to come down and not drink the cup, then Jesus goes back to heaven with God alone by himself without the redeemed and Satan continues the rampage on the earth as the prince of the power of the air. You say, so what does he have the ability to do? What does he have the capacity to to do to the Son of Man on the cross. If He has one shot to do all that He can do, it's it's beginning to make sense now, right? Much more than the physical scourging, something happened that caused Christ's appearance to be marred more than any other man right there, visible in that time period on the cross. What does Satan have the ability or the capacity to do to him? Next week, we will look at it. We'll get there next week. Beloved, I think that you're going to be amazed. And my desire is that you'll never look at the cross the same again.
and that you'll never sing the songs about our Savior the same way again when it talks about His cross. That when you see how trite we've made the cross, the instrument of death, the symbol of the Christian faith, I hope and pray that we will never view the cross the same again. And I hope that you understand that Jesus had the ability, capacity at any time to come down from the cross and not drink the cup. It's one thing if you're in a situation where you can do nothing else. Right? And you're just stuck. You're just there. And all this is happening to you and you have no ability or capacity to do anything about it. We, we all have been there watching life unfold before us, watching life unfold to us, and we just can't do anything about it. Beloved, it's another thing altogether when you have the ability and the capacity to do something about it, to put an end to it, to put a stop to it, but you choose not to. I want you to understand that at any point in time, Jesus could have come down from the cross. In fact, to kind of give you just a brief glimpse, Jesus said this in one of the accounts of the cross, when He tells Peter to put his sword away, He said... Don't you think that I could call seven, right, right, twelve legions of angels to come to my rescue if I wanted to? And beloved, he didn't even need angels to rescue him. He simply could have come down on his own if he wanted to. But he chose to stay. He chose to stay because he loves the Father. Some of you might be saying he chose to say because he loves you, right? We like to say when Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind. You have a hard time proving that biblically. When he was on the cross, the Father was on his mind. And his obedience to the Father. And in his obedience to the Father, you and I are blessed by the events and the things that took place on the cross. It was the love of the Father that He kept there. And you and I get in on the blessing. Don't make the cross about you. What did Satan have the ability to do? Next week, we're going we're gonna to take some time to look at Scripture and see and um, bring it together. And then we're going to look at the seven views of the cross uh, that's coming up. What did Jesus see from the cross? What did it look like from the cross? And we got miles and miles to go in a short time to get there. Together. Heavenly Father, I know that this is not a what to do message. I know that perhaps some would say that there's no practical application to that which we've studied today. Father, this is a who is message. And the who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who endured so much in order that we 
could ultimately be brought into the family of God. Father, I pray that as we continue uh, ahead in our study, that we will be forever mindful of that which He endured on our behalf. And Father, that we would uh, be grateful. And God, may it be that our response would be one of worship and adoration and praise. May our response be one of obedience and faithfulness. May we never look at temptation to sin again. May we understand that You have not tempted us beyond what we are able and have given a way of escape. Father, may we not give in so quickly to those temptations. Father, I pray that we would scour Your Word this week and consider the cross and continue to grow further in our own personal studies. And God, we're going to give you the glory for it all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. I hope you have a...